real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns. and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Welcome back, everyone. Nathan Rome is with you. Today, we are back on the topic of extremism with another unique perspective. And for that, I have Chris Buckley on the program. Chris is a native of the state of Georgia. He's a former KKK member who now helps de-radicalize youth, uh, youth people caught up in extremism. After serving in the U.S. Army in Afghanistan, Chris joined the Georgia White Knights as an Imperial Nighthawk drawn in by the movement's anti-Muslim and racist values. An intervention by a former white power skinhead and a Kurdish refugee, Chris was able to exit extremism. He now works as an intervention specialist with Parents for Peace and created the Trauma and Recovery Program to provide coping skills to veterans and police officers. Chris has been featured in the Washington Post, CNN, Bloomberg Magazine, and... Uh, also testified to U.S. Congress, which sounds super intimidating, but uh, welcome, Chris. Hey, pleasure to be here, man. Thanks for the opportunity to, to, to come on and talk about some of the stuff I got going on and the things that I, we're doing at Parents for Peace, man. It's a pleasure. Yeah, I'm uh, super excited to have you on here. We rescheduled from another date, but uh, we had a, another person from your organization on, Mubin, and he kind of talked about the... Uh, Muslim extremism side. So we're kind of going the opposite side today, I guess. But uh, the spectrum, man, it's a full spectrum. Yeah. You got to talk about all of it. You can't focus on one. That's how you get pigeonholed. <laughs> so it's, uh, uh, I've been really been looking forward to chatting with you. And um, we'll kind of maybe get right into it and uh, talk a bit about you. So uh, could you kind of start from the beginning and tell us about you know, where you come from and what growing up was like? Yeah, so uh, it was a cold, dark, rainy night. Uh, no, um, so, like, I was born in uh, 1983 in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. Um, in this, like, really awesome period, right? Like, uh, the 80s were the best. Um, and my dad, my dad was a very abusive alcoholic. Uh, used a lot of, a lot of substances. Um, and it was also like kind of really like had some some unique values and views on like race and sex and you know so like I mean in uh, in the documentary Refuge I kind of talk about it a little bit um, but we uh, we broke it down to like pretty pretty like simple parameters like feminism was stupid homosexuality was wrong uh, interracial relationships were disgusting and like you hang with your people mm. right uh my dad was always really big on blaming other people for for the shit that that he caused um so dad was an alcoholic and a drug addict so when dad couldn't hold down a good job or even get the good job it wasn't the fact that he couldn't pass a drug test or that he had missed you know three days in in two months mm. It was because the Mexicans were coming to steal his jobs. Uh, it was because, you know, they work cheaper than we do, so they can pay them under the table and not pay taxes. And, you know, as a kid in, like, you know, five, six, seven years old, like, 
what your parents say, man, like that's the gospel, man. You're learning everything from them. Mm-hmm. Um, also at a like really young age, I was molested for like a really long time. Um, and I remember when I went to tell my, my, my mom about it, my dad overheard and he became irate. He was going to go kill this individual um, who happened to be a very close family member mm. on my mom's side. Uh, it was my uncle. Um, and my mom freaked out. Uh, my mom was always really soft and like kind of like the attempted protector to like mitigate things. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she she told me that the only way to save my dad's life from rotting in prison and my uncle's life was to tell my dad that I was lying. So I got beat pretty good for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really, I, I feel like that's the time in my life when me and my dad's relationship changed. Um, I was always like feeling in the back of my head. My dad was 19. My mom was 16 when he got her pregnant. So, uh, my dad's mom made him marry her. He said, well, she said, well, you got her pregnant. You're going to marry her. So I always felt like I was resented, right? Like, Mm. like my dad was pissed off. Like you ruined my fucking life, dude. Like, so as a kid to feel that and to be going through like the abuse that you're, you're dealing with as well as watching the physical abuse and, and experiencing it while watching the emotional and the mental abuse on the rest of the family. Like I was just a recipe for, for disaster from the start, man. And that's really interesting because like we deal with, uh, like I focus a lot on ACE scores, right? Mm-hmm. So like, we'll get to that later, but so fast forward to the mid nineties, one of the only real controls I had to kind of like, combat the racist ideology that my dad had was that my friends group the kids from the hood right were all really diverse and like cleveland ohio was segregated and it's still kind of like that i think it's kind of gotten better because of just so many people moving and and just it it blends but Mm -hmm. when i was up the east side was uh predominantly black and what i'll refer to as others which would be like Asian Islanders, uh, you know, maybe Middle Easterns. Mm-hmm. And then West Side, where I lived, was mostly white and Hispanic. So for the most part, growing up all the way up until middle school, uh, I was sent to a school that was like three blocks from my house, man. And uh, I would walk to school in the mornings, walk home. And I had a pretty cool, like, school setting. Like, I, I mean, no no ad- adverse kind of experiences there. But come the mid-90s in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, going into middle school, somebody at the school board and the city council decided that it would be really great to integrate the school system. Mm, okay. And uh, so they picked a lottery of kids from the West side and bust them like three hours across the city to the East side. And they did the same thing on the East side, bust them to the West side. I can't really speak to the East side kids experience on the West side schools, but I can definitely speak to mine. Mm -hmm. Uh, So my dad was gone a lot because he would show up on Fridays drop what money mom needed off for bills and take the rest of his check and blow it at the bar for the weekend. And then he would stay gone for a week at a time, three days at a time. 
And usually when I seen him, he was broke and come home, usually beat up to, to sleep off his, his, you know, his, his weekends. Mm. Um, and usually by about Tuesday, he'd wake up and realize that he didn't have a job no more. So he'd have to find a new job. So mom worked a lot too. She usually worked double shifts to try to offset like dad's bouncing around from job to job. Um, now my dad, when he had a job, he was a super hard worker. I mean, he had amazing work ethic. It was just getting him there. Right. And, and like the other stuff not being so important. So I spent a lot of time with my grandma, his mom, uh, she pretty much raised me. She was mom, dad, friend. She was everything I needed, man. And uh, so she was on a fixed income and she would uh, save up a little bit every month. And at this point, I had never had a new pair of shoes. I'd never had new clothes. I was always in the hand-me-down because I was the smaller one out of all my cousins. Uh-huh. So like my cousin would get a pair of corduroys and he would hand them down. And by the time, he, when he got them, they were like, <laughs> when the next kid got them they were kind of like when i got them they were just blue jeans uh but like so i i never really got new stuff i was always in hand-me-downs man and uh that was just life that was life like um we struggled with like food groceries uh there were many a nights where the lights and the power were out because they just didn't have the money for it um so i mean we struggled we struggled a lot um so I remember I always used to get this magazine. It was like the East Bay magazine. It had all the shoes and all the cool stuff and the the sports gear, the Nikes and all the new stuff that was coming out. And I knew that I could never afford any of that stuff, but I like to look, right? Mm. I remember one day I was on my grandma's porch and it was summertime. It was hot, man. And we had just finished playing catch. We were all sweaty and we're looking through the book and I found the, the Air Jordan Jumpman. And I was like, those are so cool, man. Like, nobody's got them yet. My grandma was like, what are you looking at? And I showed her, and she was like, what, what about those? Like, what is, what is it about? I, just, I wanted them. So she saved all summer the extra money she had out of her check, and she got me those shoes to go to school with. Mm-hmm. Um, the first day of school was the first day of school at the new school on the east side. And, uh, man, I don't. I don't know what it was like for those girls in the in the sixties to have to walk into that school building. Mm. Right. But I know what it was like for me. And I, I didn't even really get into the school. Um, so it was sixth, seventh and eighth grade at the middle school. So I get off the bus. I got my fucking tongues of my shoes pulled out over my pants. So everybody can see, you know what I mean? Like everybody knows that like, this is, this is going to be my parachute, mm-hmm. right? Don't cool. I know I'm awesome. And uh, I was approached by about seven kids and most of them were eighth graders, a mm-hmm. uh, couple of sixth graders. And uh, they said, well, what the hell are you doing here? Wearing shoes like that. And I was like, I, I have to go to school here. Like, what do you say to that? You know, yeah, like, yeah. Oh, Cause I have to be, trust me. I don't want to be. And it just turned like, it really escalated really quick. And, uh, I remember I was I was beat up in the parking lot right beside the school bus. All right. Right. And, and uh the bus driver just kind of looked out the door there and just pulled the door shut mm. and uh ignored the situation. I was held down, I was peed on, uh, and I was had my shoes taken off of me. And uh I was I had a pair of slides. I remember the slides, they were all blue and they had the Jordan logo on them. He goes, Walk a mile in my shoes, cracker. 
And uh, I got up and I walked home bloody and beaten that day. And uh, I missed 181 days of school that year. Because as soon as the bus would drop me off, I would get off the bus and I would walk back home 181 blocks Jeez. in the city across the Superior Bridge. That was my first experience with like racism, right? Not just hearing my dad talk about it, but like actually like being attacked because I was white. So most of this group, I'm guessing, was is black kids. Yeah, they were oh. they were they were black kids. There was one little Arabic kid with them. Mm-hmm. But he just kind of watched, like he didn't want to, like I. But I mean, yeah. So I mean, um, I don't know what the. So this starts to. I was to say, so this is kind of like the very beginning of maybe reinforcing some of the stuff your father had been saying. These were all these were all confirmation biases for me. Yeah. Right. Um, these were things that I experienced that I'm like, okay, maybe the fuck my dad is saying's right, man. Maybe these people are kind of like animalistic and and savages and blah, 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 blah. But like, I was hurt. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I was, I was angry, frustrated. Uh, The the scarier part for me was the fact that I knew that my grandma was going to know that I didn't have them shoes when I come home. And uh, I got by with it for about a week because she worked early mornings and she would be gone before I'd get up and go to school. And I remember one day she was off work and I was getting up to go to school and I was putting on my old shoes. And she goes, where's them new shoes I bought you? I had to tell her. Mm-hmm. Grandma went to the school, right? And I don't know if you know anything about growing up in the 90s, man. Yeah. Stitches get stitches, yeah. right? Yeah. So uh, I was just, I had a target on me. So that's what kind of cemented that like I'm not going back to the school ever. So my mom was involved at the time in this anti-busing uh you know, kind of like activism to like, my kid's got a school right behind our house. Why can't he go there? Yeah. And uh, so eventually it was all dissolved, but like, so I still had like, from an early age, I had this hatred for homosexuals, Mm. right? Because I was molested aggressively. And in my little, you know, finite mind, I was like, this is what they do to kids. Mm. It's it's what happened to me. my uncle is doing this to me. Like, I mean, imagine what a stranger would do to a kid. Like, this is what happens. Like, mm. this is the reality of it. And so in my mind, it was every like male and male relationship that was like yeah. that's what's gonna happen to kids. Um, and I think part of it was because I wasn't advanced enough or developed enough to be able to to understand some things. So it definitely messed up my my developmental stage. Um and and then like you know, the the thing that really kept me grounded though, I still I want to go back to the fact that I had a very diverse group of friends. Mm-hmm. So like, I could like I and we all were going through the same shit. Like all our dads were drunk, alcoholic, drug addict, abusive. Like it was just the time, and like, and then so we all kind of leaned on each other. So there was an abandoned lot at the corner of our street where a house had been torn down. And in like years and years ago, probably before I was born, but the field had grown up and it was dirt and there was nothing there. So we put a baseball field there and it was just pillows mm-hmm. for base. Uh, you know, we spray painted lines in the grass. And so that was our cope. And like, we played ball. We played ball from the time the, that we'd get up at six, seven, eight o'clock in the morning during the summer until the streetlights come on and we had to be home. Because if we weren't at home, we didn't have to deal with it. Well, that's one thing that um, when I had Mubin on, and he was talking a lot about this, where 
um, you have like those tethers to regular society or something that kind of keeps you tied to some normalcy. So you still got this diverse group of friends, but what your parents, your dad was teaching you and then your, your actual experiences with certain groups, um, that's like this very interesting kind of dynamic of what's going on in your life. It's conflicting, man. It's pulling and pulling. And so like, you know, the expression is tugging at your, at your moral strings. Mm. Um, and at some point you start to realize that you've got to protect yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, so fast forward, man, like the busing and immigration thing, integration, whatever. Uh, I like to make a joke and call it busing immigration. Yeah. Right. Because they're integrating kids into a new school, but uh, it's it stopped. Uh, the the parents that they kind of rallied together and stood against it kind of got it abolished. So, um, we started going back to our, our our regular schools. But I mean, by this point, like I had started to experiment with a little bit of weed. I was drinking a little bit with my buddy, my Arabic buddy Eddie. Uh, we used to sneak into his dad's cabinet because in uh, he was from Lebanon. And in Lebanon, at dinner, you drink ouzo, which is, it's like a black licorice flavored uh, oh. alcohol. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's clear. It's it's awful, bro. Yeah. <laughs> but at dinner, when I would go to his house for dinner, his dad would be like, no, no, Chris. You drink this. This We drink here for dinner. And I was like, I'm not allowed to have alcohol. He was like, you're here, you drink. You stay the night. Right. And mm. I was like, okay, cool. So after dinner, we'd have a little buzz because we'd get that much in the glass. Right. Yeah. That's a lot though for a 17 year old kid, mm-hmm. 16 kid. So we, we started and my dad just, he, he, he would come home and he would see that there was problems going on. I was starting to get involved with the wrong kind of kids. So he just packed us up and like overnight moved us to Southern Ohio where he was working out of town and, uh, we went to living in this little dilapidated trailer because it was all that he could afford. Did he ever say anything about like? So you say with this one friend who's from Lebanon. Did he know him? Did your father know him? And did he ever say anything about having that one friend who wasn't white? So my man, my dad was so like he was he was contradictory. He liked yeah him. yeah he liked him. Like he would let him come and stay the night at my house. I was allowed to go stay at his house. He took him camping with us. Huh. Um, and I don't know, like, what was different about Eddie than other kids. I, you know, I think it goes back to something that a really important person in my life told me uh, not too long ago when I first started my journey out of of all this mess. He said it's hard to hate something you know. Mm-hmm. I think that the fact that my dad knew Eddie, and like, it was hard for my dad to project his hatred onto Eddie. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So. But yeah, so we moved to Southern Ohio, uh, 1996, the division series, right? <laughs> the Mariners won that year. Um, so everybody, it was super cool. Everybody was like me. There was like, and I kind of fit in really well because like, you know, when you move to a new school kind of mm. in, in a rural setting and you're from the city and everybody's like, what's it like? Talk to us. Yeah. 90% of the people I, I talked to at that school had never left their county, mm-hmm. let alone eight. Um, but yeah, so like I tried out for the baseball team. I did really good. Um, hell, I'd been playing it since I was five, right? So uh, 
I kind of fit in there. I tried football. I sucked at it. I did. I didn't like getting hit. Um, and I was really good at track. I ran the 300 meter hurdles and the uh, four by two and the uh, four by one. Hmm. The hundred meter dash and the 200 meter dash. So, like, it was just, it was a really awesome experience, man. And a lot of people look at high school and they're like, high school sucked. High school sucked. Like, it didn't for me, right? Like, for me, it was good. Um, I had a lot of really awesome friends. Um, I didn't do really great with the girls because, like, I was kind of small. Uh, and I had big ears. I still have big ears. So I put fucking plugs in them to kind of take away. But, yeah, so, I mean, I remember, like, scouts would come to the school and they would uh they would watch the the seniors and the juniors play baseball and uh in my junior year and you know the coach was like buckley if you really work hard and really you know put that effort you could go to college mm-hmm. and my dad you know i was talking to him about it he was like you you got to go to college you got to go to college and i was just so angry like and just such a defiant kid that I seen the army recruiters and everybody come into the school and I was like, all the girls just crowded them. Oh, yeah. And I was like, that's what I was saying. Like, I, I just, I, I, as a, a puberty age, like hormone raging kid, I was yep. like, that's what I need in my life. It's all them girls. So I was like, fuck it, I'm joining the army, man. And uh, I joined the army and I never looked back. Did your family say anything about that? Or they, they like it or? My dad hated it. Oh, really? He hated it. My mom, she tried to be as supportive as possible. Um, but, you know, she had to kind of keep the peace, too. So mm-hmm. uh, at 17, I only needed one parent signature. So my mom secretly signed for me to be able to leave and go to basic training that summer. Uh, <laughs> but my dad didn't know about it. And uh, I kind of let them hash it out. And, like, they're adults. They can do what they want. But... I told my mom, I was like, if you don't do this, I'm going to wait like eight months. I'm going to do it myself. And mm-hmm. then I'll never speak to either of you again. Like, I will resent you for the rest of my life. Uh, she's like, oh, okay. So. Well, did did you have anybody, anyone before that or did yourself, did you have kind of like that drive to go to the military or was it literally just kind of started as you saw that in high school? Man. So, like, I remember back when I was a kid, like, all the toys I would play with were, like, G.I. Joes. Mm, okay. Like, the little green army man. Like, I yeah. would get out in the yard. I would play out there for hours, man. And I, I played with Lincoln Logs and army men, the little green and tan ones. And, like, I would set up, like, these elaborate battles and stuff. And, like, it was just, like, <laughs> hours of fun. Um, but I would say that, you know, my, my, my papa, uh, he was in the Korean War. Uh, my grandfather on my mom's side, uh, was, uh, in the Navy, his ship was actually the first hospital ship to arrive to, uh, Nagasaki during the the World War II at the end, uh, to, to clean up. So, um, my, my biological grandfather on my dad's side was, was, he went to Vietnam. So I would say that like, there might have been a predisposition or a susceptibility to be vulnerable to the military. Yeah. But I joke around all the time and it's like, I want to see the ACE scores on kids that joined the military <clears throat> out of high school. Yeah. Like, I want to see if there's a connection to adverse childhood experience 
versus commitment and enlistment into the military. Like, but nobody wants to talk about that. Well, that's one thing that um uh, did I hear on another podcast, maybe they were talking about just like where the numbers of people come from for the US military. And I guess maybe proportion wise is generally from like lower income, maybe the the middle states, but you don't really get like a huge influx of LA types <laughs> or people from New York City uh, looking to go into the military. So you kind of have like that middle strip of people that, uh, I don't know, it's just different like values, uh, different, different um, growing up experience that kind of makes you go into the military. So yeah, I wonder, I'm, I'm sure there's been a million studies on it. I just haven't seen them. I haven't either. I don't think they're productive. That nobody wants to push that study out and be like, "Looks like it's all kids from the middle part of the country yeah. <laughs> coming to, to the military." So you outer edge kids need to get on board. No. Yeah, we had the kids from everywhere, man. And I think more importantly, I don't think it was like where you're from. I think like you, you hit it, man. Like like we were poor. We wanted more. We we didn't have any opportunity to go to college. Hell, half of us passed, barely passed high school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like. Cause you were working a job trying to offset the bills at the house on top of going to school. Um, I remember in high school, like I worked two jobs, man. I had a job, uh, at a fast food restaurant immediately after school. Uh, and I would work there for three hours and then I would go to a, uh, my senior year, I was 18 and I would leave my, uh, fast food job at like six o'clock. I would get to Kenworth, the trucking company that okay. built trucks. Yeah. And uh, we cleaned overnight. That's what we did. We cleaned Kenworth at night and I would get home at 2 a.m. and then sleep till six Jeez. and get up and go to sleep. And like that's that was my routine, man. So, so you were primed for the military then. <laughs> you already got that regimental, like the day scheduled. You're up, you get up on four hours of sleep. So I just, I was hungry, man. Like, yeah, I, I didn't like. I, I I didn't know what generational curses were. I didn't know what like like cultural boogeymen that like can can follow. I didn't know anything about that. But what I did know was like, I know how not to be a dad, mm-hmm. and I know I'm gonna be one someday. And I've got to make sure that like I'm I don't fall into the same trap. So. And then the planes hit the Twin Towers. Uh, and like that was it. I went. I left. I was like, I got to go. I'm doing this. So. Well, sorry. What year What did, year were you joining the military now? So this would be. Uh, well, so it would be 2001. Okay. So you um, you joined right out of high school. And that was 2001. Yeah. I was in high school with the, the planes hit the towers. I remember walking into foyer of the, of the high school and like in front of us, like as soon as you walk through the foyer, there was a double set of doors mm-hmm. and right in front of you was the two double doors, like gym doors, but they went into the cafeteria and above the cafeteria, there was a big TV screen. Okay. They usually morning announcements mm-hmm. like, you know, Hey, so-and-so is running for prom queen, blah, 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 blah. But like today it was, it was the news. So I was like, that's odd. And I remember like watching all of that. And so yeah, as you go through the day, like all the teachers are watching it in school on the on their TVs. And I remember like uh, me and a couple of the, the boys that, that was on my, my ball team and a couple of friends, we were like, 
let's go over there and fuck these guys up, man. Like, let's mm-hmm. go join the army. Yeah. So that's that's what we did. And uh, I, me, a uh, buddy of mine, David, um, another buddy of mine's brother, Randall, uh, and we all joined and we all went, got separated. And, uh, you know, that's that that was the catalyst for me. Like, it was a revenge thing. Like, like I've got to revenge. I've got to, you know, cement my, like, something just drawn me that, like, that's what I had to do. But at that time, because you were talking about how you had a friend as you're growing up who's from Lebanon, so he's that Middle Eastern culture. And now you see this happen with the Twin Towers. Are you thinking uh, this is uh, like a Christian versus Islam thing, or is this a white versus brown thing, or is it just no? It was whatever that group is doing it. Yeah, for me, it was just uh, it was a terrorist attack from mm. somewhere in the Middle East, and uh, like we've got to we've got to get our get backs. We mm-hmm. gotta, like, and I want to be part of that. You okay. know, like um, it wasn't racist. It wasn't. Like there was no no earmarks of anything. Like I didn't say I hate Muslims, mm-hmm. but I can look back now and be like, that's kind of around the time I started because then you start to learn that oh, it was an attack by Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. After you realize that maybe it wasn't an attack by Iraq, you know, blah yeah. blah blah. So, um, but the common theme was like, hey, it's a Muslim country. They they hate us because of our Western values. So it was more of a, I would say that it was a patri- patriotic thing. Like I wanted to defend the values of America and like mm-hmm. do what all the other servicemen and women before me had done. And when it was time to go and answer that call, I wanted to be the first one in line to be like, hey, this is this is what we do, and this yeah. is what makes us a, we're a volunteer military. Yeah, so um, kind of walk us through, like you, you sign up for the military, you're young still, but you and a few buddies yeah. join. So what, uh, how does that kind of progress? So that progressed pretty neat, man. Uh, we did what we called the delayed entry program where you go and join your junior year. You uh, go to basic training between your junior and senior summer, come back do your senior year, and then you go off and do your advanced training and uh, advanced uh, individual training and mm, go off okay. to your the funny thing is we thought if we all joined together, we could all stay together and that didn't happen. Right. So like, <laughs> yeah. um, so I met this dude when we went to reception, reception is where you go to be issued all your gear, all your haircuts, your shots, uh, and meet your drill sergeant for the first time. Mm-hmm. I went to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Um, we called it Fort lost in the woods cause it was out there. Um, and I met this dude, man. It was super cool. He was uh, um, just a, a little Christian fella, man, from Dry Ridge, Kentucky. Um, I don't, I don't want to throw his name out there because I want to be respectful to his parents. But uh, man, we really bonded, man. We we got together, and uh, in the words of Forrest Gump, he taught me about God. I taught him about like being molested and having a bad life growing up. Jeez, uh, <laughs> quite the dynamic. Yeah, it was, but yeah. you know, like we we bonded over a lot of things, sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was from Kentucky, I was from Ohio at the time, which it was right there. Like I was on the border of, of Kentucky and Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, my unit that I was assigned to was actually in Ashland, Kentucky. So, but I hadn't been there reported yet. So, 
but yeah, we just, we really hit it off, man. And then like, turns out that when we got to our units, he was in the same unit as me. And like, we spent our entire military career together, man, like ATs, travel. And I really got close with his family. And like, it got to the point to where like on holiday leaves and stuff, like I would, I would spend time with his family mm-hmm. instead of mine. Um, and uh, so we, we start with, like, I noticed as soon as we got to basic training that um, the language used to describe our enemy was very derogatory and dehumanizing. Um, from him? They called No, no, or from like just military. The military itself. Oh, okay. Right? Our drill sergeants never referred to him as Afghan soldiers, they referred to him as camel jockeys or sand edwards mm-hmm. uh Hodges and so like, it was just it was bad man. and then like that's what i started like, i didn't think nothing of it like i even started using the language mm-hmm. right like i was yeah, we're gonna go over here and get us some camel jockeys and uh send them to Allah on their haji trip you know mm-hmm. and, uh, and we just i just wanted to i don't know why but like that testosterone and that anger and that aggression like it was starting to to come to the surface right and it was it was encouraged like they want you to be violent they want you to be efficient and and able to do your job and i just like i didn't i never really met anybody from like afghanistan or iraq or and i know that like you know i had eddie he was from lebanon but like he wasn't a haji he wasn't a muslim he wasn't i mean he was a christian Mm. you know so I don't know. I just, I, I found myself like we would talk and it'd be like, I really hope I get to kill one of these guys. Mm. Like, I want to be the one to like, be like, I got one. Right. Um, and then like when you would start to do like, like your, you would have your pop-up targets on your lanes, your rifle training. Mm-hmm. And those were all the green silhouettes that would pop up. You know, you had fast Freddy at the 50 meter and then like you had the hundred, the 150, 200, all the way up to three, and those were just silhouette targets, green plastic silhouette targets. But then when you would go through and you would start to do things like mount, like dismounted engagement, mm-hmm. right? All the paper targets you shot at was a Muslim man with an AK-47 pointed at you, mm-hmm. and like his traditional dress, like the man jammies is what we would call it, uh, the 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 headpiece, um, and you would just like. Like there was never a, a like a counter message of like somebody there with a bottle of water mm-hmm. like here. You know? So there was no contrast to that. It was always like a, a lady with an infant that had a suicide vest on it, right? It's like the the desensitization started. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. so now you've already like dehumanized them with your speech. Now we're gonna visually dehumanize them and then. We're going to go into live role play where people will play local nationals in this city that we've constructed, mm-hmm. like this little city, and they're always going to be trying to fuck you over. Yeah. Like there was never anybody that would come and be like, hey, don't go that way. There's an ID. Boom. Don't go that way. Like they'd always be like, oh, yeah, yeah, go that way. And then they'd be the one that set off the ID or like mm. there was just no friendly interaction. Yeah, so yeah. like you go there already pissed the fuck off. <laughs> Right. And so then combat starts, man, and and that sucks. So I remember like our our first uh 
our first deployment where we were actually in the same vehicle, man. Like uh, we were driving a, a load from Orguni, which is uh, Pectia province, down to Sharana. Okay. It was uh, rough cheap is what we called it. And uh, it's amazing. I remember all this shit, even fucking <laughs> 10 years later. Uh, route Jeep ran through the corn gall and it was IED ambush alley. Uh, there was a wadi, which is a dried up riverbed. I was on a gun and, you know, this individual that I was really close with was in the, in the bottom of the MRAP, just sitting there listening to music, had a big old dip in, just loving life, right? And I remember they come over our headset and it was like, hey, Look behind us. The load on this uh, 916, which is a big flatbed trailer, it's swaying real bad. We hit this wadi and lose this load. We're going to be here mm. until we get it back up and we can move on. So we're going to stop before we go across and take the slack out of them binders from the drive where we've been driving. Yeah. So I popped down. I was like, hey, man, I need a cigarette, bro. And he's like, yeah, well, I need to stand up and stretch my legs. You're up there. Like, I'm going to get out and go check it. So I popped out. I was like, you're my A-gunner. I need a cigarette. 15,000 rounds of ammo underneath us. Mm. Like, I can't smoke, right? Like, <laughs> I'll, I'll kill us all. Like, which is stupid. That doesn't make any sense, right? Like, yeah. you're not going to ignite a bullet with a cigarette. But the Army's fucking intelligent. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> get smoked. Um, so I was like, dude, please. Like, let me go out and smoke. I'll tighten the binders down. Dude, we're both pissing in Gatorade bottles. Like, I mean, what the fuck? You need to stretch your legs, get up on the gun for a minute. Um, so we get to tussling, and the back door can be popped by the the TC. So back door pops. He jumps out. I start to laugh at him, and I look over, and then I start hearing, bing, 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 bing. He took the first round of a praying spray over his left eye. Oh, really? Um, and then come out the back of his neck. Now, I'm an outdoorsman, man. I'm a hunter. Like, I've, I've walked up on deer that weren't all the way dead. And uh, you got to dispatch them in, in a humane way. But, like, so I'm, I'm familiar with postmortem reflexes. Mm. I've never experienced human postmortem reflexes. So, in my mind, the, the jaw flexing, yeah. he was trying to catch a breath. Yeah, yeah. The eye moving, like, he was looking around. He was trying to find help. He was trying to talk. So here he is, the whole back of his head's blown out. It's like turn a cereal bowl inside out. Mm. And that was evidence, right? So I'm dragging him in, dragging him in, dragging him in. Gun, my, my rifle's laid out there in the dirt. So is his. Um, and I'm trying to talk to him, trying to wake him up. I'm trying to put pressure on a wound. Yeah. All right. Yeah. You want to know what that's like? Throw a base in a pillowcase and shatter it and then try to like hold it together. Mm -hmm. That's what it felt. Um, but it was wet. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, like, I remember the same hatred at that moment. Cause, like, once you start to put two and two together, like, fuck, he's dead, man. Like, he's dead. And that person meant a lot, right? Like, just strictly platonic. Like, like, he was just like, we've been through everything together. Yeah. It was, it was my brother. And I felt the same, that same hatred in my stomach start to bubble for Islam that I felt for, for homosexuals because both of them had harmed me in some way. Mm. Um, and then, you know, we get back and like, I've still not spoken to his family. Um, I'm just saying traumatize the fuck out of me. So I get home and I go national guard. And a month after I get home, I got home in March at the end of March of 20, 2009. 
I got through April with nothing, right? Like nothing happened. It was pretty laid back. I was readjusting May of 2009. So that's two months later. We get activated to go to Jackson, Kentucky, right? To provide humanitarian relief. There's some bad storms, tornadoes, floods. And uh, on the way back from that, the back axle on my Humvee snapped and I flipped it going down the highway. I broke Jeez. my back. So here, welcome opiate painkillers. Oh, okay. So like, I mean, that's kind of where like the secret ingredient, I think, or the, 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 the missing ingredient hmm. kind of like, I was going to become a hateful extremist either way, I think. Right. But then you kind of take away that inhibition and, and lower your, your critical thinking and your judgment by introducing painkillers and painkillers do what they always do. They escalated into stronger painkillers. Doctor cut me off. I started to seek them out on the street, realized heroin was cheaper. And then like, I realized I just don't feel anything ever. And I want to feel something. A buddy of mine tricked me into snorting a line of meth. Uh, We thought it was China white heroin. And I was like, I've never done that. It's going to be amazing. And uh, turns out it was meth. And uh, I went out. We went out and partied that night for the first time in like a year. And I was like, I love this shit. Yeah. This is what I need on, right? So Yeah, that'd be quite the party. Yeah. <laughs> and uh so yeah, so then uh then I just started to like the anger and the hatred and the frustration that I had towards one myself, right? Because like it was my job to protect him and I failed, right? And the anger I had towards the people that did it to him, hmm. which, I mean, I had a really close local national friend while I was there. He was a tailor. He'd sew all our uniforms, and I built a relationship, a bond with him. His name was Abdullah the Tailor. Hmm. I don't know what his last name was. It was the tailor for me. Uh-huh. But I would go every time I was on the on the FOB, on base, and I would drink tea with him. Chai tea with a chunk of molasses and this little seed that they would get from the trees that had a real citrusy flavor to it. Mm-hmm. One lemon. Or, but like, and I, we started talking and uh, we were close to the same age. He had kids and uh, he was thankful that we were there to help and provide services. And he wanted to take his kids and give them a better life in America. That's why he was working on the base. And I was like, I, so I just, I really liked the dude. And I remember we went on like a week long mission and come back. And I went to drink tea with him, and the 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 shop was boarded up. It had boards over it. I was like, "What the fuck? Where'd the tailor go?" Taylor got caught with IED equipment. Oh, like, really? On the base, like he was building an IED uh. in the bunk where where U.S. soldiers were going to go take shelter from a rocket attack. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it's like, and it's just like you can't trust none of these fucking people. Yeah, yeah, I could see how that would really set set that in stone like i've been drinking with this guy yeah interpreter was uh like he would go home at night and his uh his his sister's husband was a taliban uh fighter mm. so like i just fuck man like they're and the ana whenever we drive through kabul the fucking afghan national police would shoot at us oh really and save the taliban uh, okay so we would always have to link up with them before we drive through Kabul and 
every time we would link up with them, we get shot at. If we just blew their checkpoints and blew through their gates, not a shot fired. So you put two and two together. Yeah, it's almost like they're kind of getting you to do their, I'll say, dirty work for them, right? It's like, oh, the bigger guys here with the bigger boom sticks, let's get them to, you know, we'll trick them into doing some of this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's just, it was so hard, man. And, and like, I come home with this, like, this anger. And like I said, the anger of, of myself, the anger at the external factors, and then you mix in the substance abuse, man, and you just, you're, you're gone. You're, you're off. You're off on that, that rabbit hole. And I, I started to struggle with work and employment and, and taking care of my family and uh, met some people that were affiliated with the KKK and they were helping. Right. Like, well, where's your family at this point? So when you come back and you got this injury, like is mom and dad still around? Uh, or do you have any other relationships? So, yeah. So mom and dad are still around. Um, and like this, this injury, this progression into drugs, this goes on from like 2009 to 2013. Mm. Um, my mom and dad are still around. Uh, they come and got me after I healed up enough to be able to take a car ride and brought me home to them. Uh, but like by that point, man, like my dad would just do really stupid shit. Like him and his buddies would get to drinking and think it would be funny to fill up an oxygen, like fill up a balloon, like one of those big, like punching balloons that okay. had the rubber band. On. He would fill those with oxygen and then he would tape toilet paper to them and like run them out of ways. And he would like the toilet paper and then it would explode. Like oh, it would really? break house and like. For somebody to just come back, like you don't do shit like that to them. And they would laugh their fucking asses off about it. Yeah, yeah. So I had to and uh I remember my wife started having seizures and uh me and my dad had a, a physical altercation and that was about eight years ago and I haven't really spoken to any of them since. Oh I so sorry. So you come back, you're dealing with the substance abuse, uh your parents are still around. Where you get married in this time? Uh, so yeah, so while funny, so like while I was in uh, Jackson doing the uh, the humanitarian relief, I met this amazing woman, dude. Like she was like I couldn't think about anything but her. Mm. And like I found myself telling my 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 commanders in the morning, I was like, hey, can I have route two? And they'll be like, why? And I'm like, I don't know. I just do it real well. I'm comfortable with it. Yeah, yeah. But she <laughs> route two, right? So like. She couldn't get off of her property because they had these swinging bridges that they would have to walk across, park on one side of the the, the gorge, walk across, and then their, their house and everything would be on the other side. So the bridge walked out. Mm. So like I we had a pulley system rigged up. I could hook like you know a case of water and a box of MREs and I could pull it over to her. We would stand there and talk. Yeah. And I went down that route one time and they had a makeshift uh bridge. They were able to get out. I was like, fuck, well, there she goes. She's gone. I'll never see her again. And I seen her in the gas station that day. And uh, I didn't realize she was behind me. Um, I went to turn around and she goes, <gasps> and, and she had two big ices. Like, mm. I remember they were blue, blue ices. And she just slammed into me and looked up and was like, oh my God, and ran out of the store. And here I am covered in blue icy in my uniform. So like, I go, to, I go to the counter. I was like, dude, I'm sorry. I'll pay for those. Like, you know, whatever mm -hmm. so that night i seen her at the motel where we were all staying at she uh she had come with a friend with the intentions of like i want to see if that guy's there mm -hmm. and like me being a guy like me seeing her like 
Like we we fell in love the the day we met each other. We fell in love, and uh, so I finally talked to her, and I had to take the convoys back that next morning. So it was May twenty first, two thousand and nine, is the day I met her face to face and talked to her, and uh, May twenty first that evening. I was going to take the convoy back because we were done with our tour down there. Mm-hmm. I was going to get my car. I was going to drive back up and we were going to spend the weekend together. Um, on the way back is when I broke my back. So it took a few months Jeez. for me to get there. We got married the next year on, on the anniversary of the accident. We got married because that was the day we met. So, okay. So from there, uh, you know, when, when you got together with her, does she know like a lot of, uh, I'll say like your thoughts, stuff kind of percolating and things from overseas or, or your history with your dad? Yeah. So like, I, I'm a very, well, I was, uh, I've kind of learned that, that there's power in transparency. Right? Mm-hmm. So I'm a very like open person now, but then I wasn't. So she didn't know about my addiction. She mm-hmm. didn't know about, the type of people my parents were. Uh, she didn't know about like the way I grew up or the molestation or or anything. Mm-hmm. Right? She just knew she loved me and I loved her. And and over time, like we've been together for 13 years. Um within the last I'd say five to seven, like I've really opened up and started to talk to her about everything. And um so no, see, she just kind of got like baptized by fire and was like, oh well. So like she would know by like things that I would say. Oh, okay. Um just kind of getting the hint, like, right? Like little things drop in here and there. Yeah, she she knew. Yeah. She knew, she knew, man. Like, but I was never like so there's like this is really it sounds weird, but like I was I was I hated homosexuals and Muslims. Like that was, that was my focus. That's what I wanted. That's, I didn't have a problem with blacks. I didn't have a problem with mm. Jews or Hispanics or none of that shit. Right? Like it, I didn't care. I hated Muslims because I felt like they were killing our boys overseas indiscriminately. And they were trying to implement this, this Sharia law here in the United States. Like they mm-hmm. were flooded in here by the, by the thousands, building mosques every couple of miles and it was scary to me yeah um and i hated homosexuals because well we discussed that but i just like i don't know when it got sideways like i don't like i remember like we started struggling i had the issues with my parents we moved to georgia um and then like that's where i just started meeting folks man and you know they were like hey man uh here's a bag of clothes for your kids. Like we went through and cleaned some of our stuff out and just done, just have them. Mm, okay. And like, you know, in a lot because I was struggling to buy clothes for my kids. I was struggling to keep food on the table and they didn't approach me. And like they, people hear the KKK and they think they show up to your door in the middle of the night, robes and pointy hats with a torch. And they don't. And they're just a dude, you know, at work. Who's like, let me help you, bro. Like, like cool. Like I got you. We'll figure this out. So it's like the slow, methodical drip kind of of integration. Yeah. And they like they find out what it is. What are your grievances? Yeah. And like I would I didn't hesitate to tell anybody I couldn't stand Muslims. Mm. 
or that I, I hated homosexuals. I didn't call them homosexuals at that time, right? Like, yes. Yeah. Or I was like, you know, I had a, a very different descriptive term for them. Yeah. But it was the anger. It was the hurt. It was the hatred talk. So, you know, eventually people pick up on things and they're like, hey, man, you got to come to a barbecue. Bring your family this weekend, man. I want to introduce you to my friends and, and you know, they're they're really cool and and he works here he he runs this place dude he can get you a better job dude like come and meet him and talk to him and we'll get you a better job and then on top of that I'm already like full blown addiction mm-hmm. and fuck most of these guys are addicts too so now I've got a group of using buddies a group of buddies that are helping me like you know generate more income than I was a group of people who are helping me take care of the needs that I have that I'm unable to meet yeah. right and like. In no way am I blaming anybody but myself for not being able to to meet those needs. But doesn't change the fact that I wasn't able to meet the needs. Yeah, yeah. So like, it just spiraled. And I remember they they came to me and they was like, you know who we are. And I was like, oh yeah, I kind of, I figured it out real quick. They were like, uh, we've done a lot for you. You, uh, you want to, you want to patch on? Mm. and i was like fuck yeah man i thought you guys had never asked right and i was privy to like the inner workings of the group i think part of it was like the mystery right like like it's such an old like there's a lot of mystery and like secrecy around it like i just fucking wanted to know some secrets right but at that point did they do anything that you saw um like had they shown you you know hey this is our true beliefs or uh, you know, are they doing any violent stuff that you're like so, kind of picking up on? No. So not really. So what the what the clan was doing was using the NSM for their violence. Right. So like the whole like the last couple of years, like especially like the last decade, the KKK still like you, you see people, they're like the KKK doesn't exist anymore. And it's like the fuck they don't. And mm. like I probably do. Uh, and there's probably a school teacher at your kid's school that is a full patch member of the clan. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I know that I had several elementary school kid teachers on my, like on, in my platform, right. I had one police officer who was like a city police officer. Wow. Uh, and then we just seen that story that broke on Twitter about, uh, the cop who had uh, blood and honor tattooed on his neck. He had mm. the pit bull on his chest, the Nazi swastika, and like nobody knew that this guy had these tattoos all over him. Yeah, uh, weird. Like I posted, I think I shared the story on my Twitter. If are you on my Twitter? No, I'll have to look this one up. Uh, let me, let me, I'll look it up while we're talking. But uh, at least give you the guy's name, and you can Google him and get yeah. the story. Um, so, but yeah, so I mean, like. There was no violence happening, but they were working together with the NSM and doing like organizing stuff, right? So, do these groups like? Do you see a lot of? Uh, do they ever hold just like a big uh, recruiting drive? <laughs> I don't know what else to call it, but are they just like yeah. set up a bunch of tables and go, "Hey, yeah, come sure. on, join us"? And so there's that, and then there's the other component where they just kind of happen across people and say, "Hey, man, like we'll help you out," and then eventually it comes back to say you know, uh, now we've helped you, like, would you want to help us type deal? Yeah. So, uh, the way they recruited is they did this thing called, uh, night rides. Um, Mm. 
and they would put like flyers or paraphernalia, memorabilia in a Ziploc bag with uh, a penny and like uh, a chunk of brick, right? Hmm. And they would fling them out into people's driveways at night. They would just hit whole neighborhoods. And the hope was that A, uh, some non-white families would find this and freak out, maybe want to leave the neighborhood. Yeah. And then the other hope was that somebody would see this and be like, oh, yeah, let me call these motherfuckers, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it was, uh, that was the recruiting effort, right? Like, it was very, you know, like, you either had to know somebody hmm. and, and get in that way, or you got the memorabilia. And then they, for the longest time, they had a website up. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I've seen it. Some of those, you see them through policing, like, come across some of that stuff. Yeah, so, uh, Jason Dare of Vinland, Vinland, New Jersey. Okay. Yeah, uh, Blood Donner, Pitbull, Swastika, um, you know, and he's been kind of like, we don't know if the uh, the powers that be that kind of do the vetting on, like, letting you become a cop. Yeah. Just missed all this. Like, dude's, like, sprayed, right? From, like, the neck down, he's sprayed. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of like, how did they get by the... Uh, <laughs> yeah, somebody's not doing their job. And then they want to seem like, like, oh, my God, I didn't know. But, but yeah, so, like, dude, we got white supremacist cops, judges, um, other people, and, like, definitely in the prison guard. So, I mean, like, you just gotta... Even from my own experience seeing things um, where I work, like, not not my employer, but, like, in this city, and you go to a lot of these different venues, um, groups, and you start to see who's hanging out with who. And you're like, well, that person, that's only one degree of separation from this organized crime group. Like, that's a little too close for comfort. Um, so you start asking questions about all these different uh, uh, people, and you see how groups can infiltrate things. I mean, we there's lots of cases of like Hells Angels or other groups infiltrating you know, justice systems or uh, talk motor vehicle branch, and they can just see what cops uh, are registering or different things, right? Um, but I find like the recruiting side is, is very interesting in that, you know, they, they'll just do a lot of in-your-face stuff, but then they also have the component that's a little more of the soft sell kind of get you in there. And it's like, it's not so bad. And, 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 and through that method, can you talk a bit about uh, once you say, yeah, I'll, I'll patch in, um, can you talk about what that means and then what that process is? Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of ritualistic stuff that like they've kept around since like the clan was was organized, right? Like mm. you have to. They, there's a lot of hazing that goes in, and uh, mm. I liken it to being a probie at a biker club. Okay. okay? Yeah. Uh, they they just treat you like shit. They they really they make sure that you really want to be there. Um, there's, uh, like, I remember, so me, um, my, my initiation, like every initiation is different. Like they initiate you in different ways and they're all like really horrible, right? Like they're mm -hmm. horrible ass initiations. For mine, I was told that I was going to go to get to meet, uh, so our Imperial wizard, 
was a direct descendant of Robert Byrne. Oh, okay. Right? So he was like, hey, you want to meet some really cool people that helped the uh, the 60s era, 70s era clan, you know, get as strong as they were. And I was like, yeah, sure. So we get in the truck. It's me, the the IW, and a couple of other, like, ranking members. And we get to this barn. And uh, I remember they shoved me to the ground and tied my hands behind my back and put a hood over my head, uh, like a black hood. They took me to this barn barefoot. And I know that I was in the barn because, like, I could feel, like, the straw that I was walking on. And you could smell it. And you were just looking at the barn. And now you're into the barn, right? They sat me down in a chair. It was a wooden chair. And they tied my hands to the back of the chair behind me. So I'm sitting there like this with this hood on my head. And uh, I remember the hood was ripped off and there was like nine people that were there and they were all in their robes and their hoods and they had their masks down. And uh, they were like, can't believe you got him to come in here. He doesn't know we know yet, does he? Mm. And I was like, no, I know you guys know what? Oh, dude, we know you're a fucking cop. We know you are. Mm. You've been being a cop like we we've only let you know what we wanted you to know and uh then they lit their torches they were like we're burning this whole fucking barn to the ground and you're just gonna happen to be in it and so they they kind of like squirted lighter fluid in in a big circle around me and uh lit the lighter fluid and i was like fuck oh my god i'm gonna die here like i'm gonna like this is it and here i am pleading and begging and i'm crying i'm like i'm not a fucking cop like I can't stand fucking, right? Like, blah, 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 blah. And this goes on. And I, I got smacked around a little bit. And uh, there was a gun brandish, right? And, like, they put the gun in my mouth. And uh, I still remember the way my teeth felt on the metal. It was, it's like, a, it's one, like, you'll never not remember that experience. And uh, they pulled the trigger and it went click. And then they all started fucking laughing. And then they took their mask up and they were like, welcome to the brotherhood. And there was only a patch of fucking straw around me. Right. Yeah. Like the rest of it was dirt. It had been raked back. It was soaked with water. So like they weren't going to burn that barn down. But Mm. like I was terrified. I was terrified. Then they put you on your knees and the Imperial wizard gives you your oath. You know, I realized if I ever turn my back on my brothers, I will die a traitor's death at the hands of my brother. So like you're, 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 you're terrified into not leaving. And yeah. so my military background, like my, my ability to use, maintain and train on firearms was like unparalleled. And uh, I was led into the initiative that they were getting the younger kids because they had their own youth program, right? Mm-hmm. Where kids you know, be 16 and you could join, but you couldn't become a full patch member until you were 18. Okay. Um, but they were telling them that they wanted them to go join the Army or the Marine Corps or this or that. And then when they got back to bring that training back to the group, right? They couldn't have any tattoos on them where they were identifying. So you had any rebel flags or fucking like KKK or racist tattoos, you weren't eligible for it. But that was the cream. That's yeah. what they wanted. Like you were seeing these guys like 
evolved their recruitment tactics. And like, I'll, I, I say this all the time. I've dealt with military recruiters and I've dealt with hate group recruiters. They have their own branch yeah. of recruitment. Like that's what they do. They create paraphernalia. They create propaganda. They create like, like narratives. And then they, they also like go out and they try to meet a quota. Dude, these hate groups, I would say their recruitment practices and standards rival that of any military recruiter I've ever met. Do you see, was there like a, maybe a, a prototypical person that they would look for? Or is it just, we'll, we'll get anybody in here that we can trust? So we'll get anybody in here that we can trust, but like there at the end, they really started to focus on kids yeah. who like, who had issues, right? Like, think about all your shooters over the last 10 years, right? Yep. What was the common thread with all those shooters? Yeah, all the youth. Right. They were all the youth. They all had some sort of mental health kind of situation going on that was either untreated, undertreated, or mistreated. Yeah. Right? And then, like, nobody knew anything. Oh, my God. Like, they're a great kid. We didn't realize that that they were going to... Like, nah, somebody did, right? So now you're starting to see these hate groups target these kids, mm-hmm. right? Um, you look at the, the the Nashville shooter. You look at the top grocery shooter. You look at the... the Like, all these shooters, yeah, right? All these white supremacist shooters over the last decade. There's a common theme, right? They're, they're not all kids. Some of them are adults. But they're absolutely 100% invested into the ideology because, I, I mean, there's there's histories of mental health. Yeah. There's And ASD is one of the things that we're really starting to see because kids with ASD see, like, everything in black and white. So it's easy to, once that, once that person with autism buys in or, like, severe ADHD or whatever the mental health issue is, once they buy in, then you got them. You can send them in any church, school, wherever you want, and they'll shoot the place up because mm. they're they're willing to die for that cause. Uh, how long were you in in total, like as a member? So I in, like I patched in as soon as I got out of the army. Uh, I, I I still had a moral conflict with being a part of a hate group while I was involved in the military. So mm-hmm. I ETS and there was zero accountability to the military okay. then the addiction spiraled and i just kind of like shifted right into that i think a lot of it was from like a need of belonging a need of like having a war to fight and what better war to fight when you're a drug addict racist than a race war yeah right so i mean it just like the the ingredients were right the temperature was right and it just it just happened so while you're in there uh in the this group uh, what are kind of the, is there like ongoing requirements of you? Is there meetings? Do you got to contribute in any way? Yeah. So we had a, a requirement that at least once a year, you had to plan, organize and hold a cross light, a cross burning ceremony. Okay. Right. And that's the typical where they burn the cross and they have all the, the group come. So you have to find a venue you have to organize all of that. The other thing is, is that you have to attend meetings monthly. And uh, 
you have to pay your dues, right? And all the dues go to the Imperial Wizard. This dude's usually some lazy, drunk, like, worthless piece of shit that doesn't work. And, like, this is his main source of income, right? Yeah. Coincidentally, the Imperial Wizard had the nicest place, the nicest car, the nicest property of any member in the organization. Yeah. Um, you, know, you think about, like, the, the, the other guys that, like, that are out there that have come out about being former Imperial Wizards or former leaders. And like, they'll tell you all about like, it's, it's, it's a financial racket. Mm -hmm. Right. So, but yeah. And then on top of that, like you had to attend events if there was a protest or counter protest or whatever it was, like you had to be there, you had to show up for that. And, you know, well, without, uh, cause I don't know statute of limitations in us, but, uh, without incriminating yourself, but, uh, was there any sort of violence? Like, did they say you have to go do, you know, you have to go break all these windows or you have to go attack these people or was there any of that while you're in there? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, I never participated in any of that because by the time that was happening, I had already moved up into a, we'll call it a corporate. Mm, okay. Position, right. Like I'm a national officer at this point, right. I'm you're in management. <laughs> yeah, I'm in second command of of like the entire Georgia and and United States faction, but I was just in charge of like security. So like I would plan security for for rallies, like if they were having a cross burning ceremony, I would uh I would take care of other things, but like you know, there were there were the state so the national level sends down guidelines to the state level. The state guys the Grand Dragons and, and uh, you know, the lower levels, them guys all kind of do their own things, yeah. right? So if they put out, like, orders of, like, hey, we want you to uh, plain clothes, uh, find out and, and attack members of the LGBTQ community. Just give them a good thrashing. Don't, don't kill them. Don't severely wound them. But just kind of smack them around a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, go break. Hey, listen, I know for a fact, Two neighborhoods over, there's a, a, a black girl and a white guy date. Go bust her windows out, right? So, I mean, like, that stuff happened. Um, the most notable violence was Charlottesville. Okay, right? yeah. Where, where they showed up to Charlottesville. Uh, the KKK would usually show up to, like, Selma to, like, protest the Civil Rights March across the bridge, the reenactment. Um, it was... It was just a lot of like antagonization, mostly, mm. right? We don't want to start violence, but we would want to have a justification, yes, for, from provocation that would allow us to kind of like use the law in our favor. Well, you know what? We see this in uh, with police a lot where you'll get somebody who gets up in your face, they'll put the finger in your face, they'll be calling you all the names. And they're doing everything because they want to get you into that that fight. They want that reaction. Meanwhile, their friend is standing right there recording it. And you know that you're the one who's got something to lose, not this guy who's in your face. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a similar scenario. Absolutely. Uh, that was like, that was the policy that was set down was like, hey, like you don't ever throw the first punch. Mm -hmm. You don't ever. So you can look like the victim all the time, right? You, yeah, you it's a victim you victimize yourself. Yeah. Right? By 
you know, you get the other person to engage you. Once they engage you, like, you know, it was mandatory that everybody at least had a knife and pepper spray on them, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, There's a documentary out. Like, I didn't go to Charlottesville. I was was working on, uh, like, I was getting out. So, like, I was kind of separating myself from the group at that time when that happened. But if you watch the, uh, there's two documentaries that are really good to watch. Uh, one of them is called The Fight for White Supremacy. It's a BBC documentary. Um, I'm actually in that documentary as like, you know, a black robe clan. Um, and then there's another documentary called Meeting the Enemy by Dia Khan. Okay. And it kind of shows a lot about like how, how the, the, this group was working. Like, hey, you don't attack nobody. But then they got one Klansman who's got a knife out. He was like, I was aiming to gig him, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know, fuck, man. Like, these guys go with the idea that, like, they want to do violence, but they have clear rules of engagement. Um, But, yeah, so, I mean, and then, you know, everything just kind of fell apart. I hit my disillusion phase, and I realized, like, my wife kind of gave me an ultimatum. She was like, I'm done with this. She was like, you're either going to choose me and your children, or you're going to choose your drugs and the Klan. Mm. And like I had this sobering moment. I was like, I've got to, I've got to figure this out. I don't want to lose my family. Right. Where was she in, in, in this whole process? So, I mean, you're in this organization, you're moving up, you know, I kind of want to talk about the dynamic with her, but then also what it was like with your kids. So I'll start with the kids. Uh, mm-hmm. I got super lucky. Both of my kids were so young that they don't remember anything about it. Like CJ was four, Myra was like just born. Um, so like CJ's 11, you know what I mean? Like yeah. he, so like, we've got our new documentary that come out called refuge, uh, by executive producer, Katie Couric and, uh, Aaron and Din Blanken or Aaron Bernhardt and Din Blankenship and just released March 24th on streaming, uh, voodoo iTunes, uh, Google and, uh, prime. I think okay. Amazon prime. So, uh, it kind of follows my story of like after my addiction, uh, like how I how I kind of went through and and you know made, made rectification of like all the stuff that I've that I've done. Um, but yeah, so my kids didn't remember much, uh, nothing really at all. But when my son watches the the refuge documentary, he's like, "Is that me?" And I'm like, "Yeah, buddy, that's you." And he's like, "That's that's crazy." Yeah. Why was I doing that? And I was like, because I was doing that. He's like, man, I'm glad you don't do that stuff to me. Mm -hmm. So a kid's bounce back, um, not through any less effort of trying to make sure that they had the the resources to bounce back. But so my wife was just kind of like, she was the only person in my life that didn't give up on me and knew that like, this wasn't who I was. Mm. Like, even when I had given up on myself and started to try to push everybody I cared about away, my wife was like, absolutely not. You will not push me away. And, you know, so my wife was like quietly behind the scenes this whole time trying to find somebody to help. Like, who do you go to? Like, do you call the FBI? Do you call, is there somebody out there that like helps these people like this? Yeah. And there wasn't, there really wasn't anybody. Um, so she stumbled upon uh, a story on YouTube about Arno Michaelis. 
Mm. Right. And Erno was uh, one of the founders of the Hammerskins in Milwaukee in the mid 90s. Uh, really violent white supremacist neo Nazi group. That's quite the name. <laughs> he was also the lead. Yeah, they were, they were also, uh, he was the lead singer of a white power band called Centurion. Mm. And uh, so he was kind of like coming out telling his story about how he changed his life and like what helped him change his life and the stuff that he had done. And my wife stumbled upon that and somehow she got a, an email for him and, and she reached out to him and she was like, listen, we have to save my husband. Like, I need you to help. And uh, she didn't really expect a, a, a message back, but but she did. She got a reply back and he was like, look, I, I'm I'm on. Like, let's do it. Like, I'll, I'll help any way I can. And he actually flew wow. all the way from to Georgia to come and meet me. And uh, <clears throat> the, the really cool thing was that, like, he told me a story, but he didn't tell me that he was there to kind of try to help me leave the KKK. So no pressure, nothing like that. Just telling the story. He asked me how I felt about being an addict. Like, do you enjoy it? Like, are you, are you okay? Are you happy? And, and he knew the answer because he himself was in recovery from alcohol. Hmm. But I just told him, I was like, dude, I, I want nothing more than to be sober and to not feel like this. Like, I hate this. Like I'm miserable. And, uh, there's a really, a really powerful picture of Arno hugging me on my front porch steps. And you could just tell that I was just broken. Mm. Um, and he was like, we're get, we got to get you sober. Homie. We've got to get you sober. So that started that process of like sobriety. Um, once my, once my, my, my mind cleared and the fog lifted of like addiction and like, you started to have like moments of clarity and then more moments. And then specific, like, you remain clear like then then i could work on like getting my heart sober but i still had this this really nagging hatred for islam and and the homosexuals so what does arno do is uh he starts to work on like confrontation therapy right and uh that's the only word i can think of to describe it um exposure right i'm going to introduce you to some muslims I'm mm. going to introduce you to an imam. I'm going to introduce you to this guy. And Mubin is one of the people that he introduced me to. And so Mubin's the first Muslim I was ever willing to speak with about the way I felt about Muslims. Mm. And uh, we had like an hour and a half chat over Zoom. And, and like I started grilling him about like the two separate books of the of the of the Quran. Well, how come you can lie about it in the second book? And it openly tells you lie to anybody who wants to know uh, about this. So I was like, so why should I even believe you? Mm -hmm. And that's when we started to tell me about like the different paths and the different sects and, and, and like how many different versions of Islam there were. And uh, like, it was just, he was really gentle and compassionate with. Yeah. And uh, I walked away from that meeting, knowing something and learning something. And it was able, it was, a, it was an opening, a cognitive opening for me to challenge myself. Right. So, uh, yeah, we just started to, to work on some really intensive exposure therapy and, you know, I, I, I really just kind of took my own recovery and ran with it at that point. And, and, and Arna was like, listen, there's this organization out here 
that could really benefit from like just being able to pick your brain. You can volunteer with them for a little while and kind of give back. And I'm going to put you in touch with the executive director. Her name's Miriam Churchill. Mm-hmm. And she parents for peace. It's a nonprofit organization. Uh, and he told me the story of the founders, Melvin Bledsoe and uh, his son, Carlos. And I was like, like you kind of, you, when you leave a group like that, you have some baggage. Yeah. Like you have, you know, you have to fix it. And you put so much negative energy out there into the world that you have to, you have to take some back. Yeah. And you have to try to take as much back as you can. And it was a no brainer for me to like, just talk to Miriam and we built a really organic and, and natural relationship. Uh, she's an amazing person. Um, she, uh, she had just finished getting the first ever uh, non-government funded helpline for people dealing with extremism and radicalization up and running. So I volunteered there for about two years and I didn't know it at the time, but it, that was my vetting period. Okay. Right. She made me volunteer there so she could monitor me, yeah. keep me on a leash and make sure that I was going to be a fit for what she envisioned in her mind of this organization becoming. Um, and uh, it was 2019. Uh, 2017 is when I got involved with Parents for Peace. Uh, 2019 is when I became a full-time staff member. And uh, I've been doing that ever since. And one of the really cool things that, that you know Miriam allowed me to do was work on this idea that a person can be addicted to hate the same way they can be addicted to substance mm-hmm. and who else would know that better than somebody who was addicted to substances and also felt like they were possibly addicted to hate. Yeah. So we did a lot of research, a lot of experimenting and uh, you know, I've, I've not met anybody that provided any sort of valid argument that said that you couldn't be. So, you know, I created this program called the trauma and recovery program based on a 12 step approach mm-hmm. uh, uses it's a very moral cognitive approach to self-reflection, introspective, uh, self-driven recovery. Um, but it also, it, it also takes into account the fact that like the parts of our brain that are addicted to substances are also the same part of our brains that are affected by trauma. Okay. Right. That, that part of our brain, your amygdala, your nucleus accumbent, your uh, prefrontal cortex, like all these parts of our brain are, are similar response mechanisms. So you get the craving. Yeah. Then you have release and then you have the come down period and then you have the re-engagement period and then you have the craving and then you have the, you know, so we, uh, just to make sure that we were, we were on the right track, um, we sent me to a, like a seven month trauma studies class with uh, oh, Dr. Wow. Basil Vander. Um, and he's like the leading trauma clinician in the world. Like he's, he's when people talk about trauma, Basil Vanderkolk's name is in the same sentence. Yeah. Um, so like I learned so much about trauma and, and, and how it affects the body. And like, I've got all of his books up there on my shelf. He's, he's a genius. Um, and then, I decided that uh, the best way for for people like me to do the work that we do uh, with interventions and and like you know kind of mentoring people is to 
look at what we see a lot of, and we see a lot of mental health issues, mm-hmm. right? Like big portion of the cases that we get that people refer, they call in are suffering from ASD. They're, they're on the spectrum, uh, ADHD, oppositional defiance, uh, depression, anxiety, trauma, 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 trauma. I can't say it enough. Um, that lead people to these preconceived vulnerabilities. And one of them being addiction, substance abuse, and another one being ideology or radicalization or extremism. So when we say that that hate is a drug of choice, mm-hmm. that's what we mean. They're coping. So I went, uh, you know, the organization Parents for Peace, Miriam, uh, our programs manager, we all we all sat down and we talked, and it was like our interventionists need to have a peer support certification. Like they need to be peer support specialists uh, in like mental health, in addictive diseases, in your forensics, so that they can go and work with these people who are being released from prison. And uh, that's what we did. So I'm now. Uh, as well as being an interventionist at Parents for Peace, the founder and creator of TRP, the Trauma Recovery Program. I'm also a certified peer specialist uh, in mental health for the state of Georgia. Well, and you do a lot of traveling too, right? You guys are you guys travel quite a bit? Uh, so a lot of the traveling that we do is via, like, we'll have functions, events, uh, mm-hmm. panels speak on. So yeah, we, we now that COVID's, gone we, we've got a lot more i've got a lot more travel booked up this year than i did during the covid years obviously but uh most of our work that we do with people is like me and you are doing right now via zoom yeah we have uh, a senior interventionist we have an interventionist we have a note taker and we have the person that's participating in the services so and then we just we work we, we dig through we we go places that everybody else doesn't want to go. Yeah. Right. And yeah. We always joke. It's like everybody can't be researchers, mm-hmm. right? Like some to do the work because without people to, to do the work, then the research means nothing. Well, and so on this program, um, can, if somebody comes in or like, is it like a referral program? So like you're saying like a spouse or maybe parents call up and say, I need help. My kid or spouse is, saying these things or doing these things, what do I do? Is that kind of usually the start for you? All right. So the pro like parents for peace is a very complex machine, right? Mm-hmm. So the first thing that happens is somebody calls the helpline, right? Okay. And that's monitored first responders, uh, certain hours of the day. Uh, there's messages that can be left afterwards. And then we have our intake team which is usually just one specific person who's very familiar with the methodology that they've created. Her name's Emma Juan. Um, you know, she would usually do the intake. Uh, I believe that she's gotten so much on her plate now that she's trained another individual to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they do a biopsychosocial, uh, you know, assessment, like, you know, to kind of get a feel of like, you know, what they're, they, they get family history and background because, what happens is during this intake, the intake specialist or first responder wants to get as holistic of an approach and and view of who this person was. Yeah. When they the change, the circumstances around the change, and who they are now. 
So by the time that happens, then they they send it off to one of the interventionists, myself, Mubin, uh, Hardeep, mm-hmm. uh, Arno, who's an interventionist that works with us now. Um, we have Kevin who's uh, working with us. So like we have we have a team of interventionists that will be assigned this case, and then all of us kind of do our job different. Right. Yeah. Like we've all got our own style, our own, you know, unique kind of way that we like to do things. Um, me, I like to do it the way that it worked for me. Mm-hmm. So I go in there and be like, so dude, this ideology guy is all wrong. You can't do this. Like, well, I don't, man. I listen with intent. Right. And I'm there to let this person talk so that they can tell me what the problem is. Right. And I'll ask questions, I'll probe. Mm-hmm. I'll go to certain things that they're talking about and I'll be like, tell me more about that. And so what was it like growing up? And then I complement their story with my own experiences to build like a really natural, organic relationship. Yeah. Right. And I never once dive like people will say nasty, vile things to try to get the reaction out of you. So you don't let them. When they say something that's like, off the wall, crazy, hurtful, like insensitive. You just, you just absorb it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I hear you, man. I hear you. Uh, so like, tell me some more about, uh, growing up man. and like, man, when I was growing up, this is what we did for fun. So it's a very long process, right? But a complete stranger is not going to change somebody's mind by telling them that they need to change their mind. And this is why. Yeah. Because they get defensive. Like, screw you. I don't know. You, you, I'm fine. You're the problem. But when you, it's hard to hate something you know, so you get to know. And then you kind of kind of work into that that role model phase of like, man, like, what would you think in there, dude? Why would you do that? Like, you don't ask what's wrong with you. Yeah. What hurt you? Yeah. Who hurt you? Tell me about it. Like, do you want me to tell you some stories about what and who hurt me? And then you start to give your own life experiences, your lived experiences. And when you can look somebody in the eye and you can have that conversation, they can't hide it from you. And you just let them know. And, and then sometimes you unlock something that they want to talk about and you help them process what's going on. And, uh, you know, every 10 sessions, our, uh, one of our, you know, admin people will have a session with that person and they'll reevaluate the bio. So the radical risk behavior okay. right, scale. So there's that done at the intake two, the radical behavior scale. And then they do it every 10 sessions and they start to compare and they're like, Oh man, it started out. This guy was at like a four on intent to commit violence. He was at a, a, a five on his living situation, higher the number, worse off the the answer lower the number the the more ideal of an answer you want Hmm. well this guy's down one point on violent risk assessment he's moved down two points on relationship right like positive healthy coping relationships uh he's went from being untreated unstable to enrolling in mental health services so that they can kind of get that portion of the the situation under control so you know, and as that goes on, then we start to look into the off-ramping phase. Okay. Right? Because you put somebody forever. Then once you go 
so long and uh, the interventionists are like hey look i've been working with with john doe here for a very long time and i would like to submit a request for an evaluation of his case to be off-ramp and we have three different off-rampings we have with high success we have with uh moderate success or with low success and uh, low success means that the person chose to to disengage with us and, and avoid working with us. Mm-hmm. We haven't had too many of those. Um, that sometimes a person's life sphere will kind of change, and they'll they'll have to adjust to their life changes, and they won't be able to work with us anymore, or something like that. We've had a few of those, but we try to to maintain with everybody until we get to that moderate high success rate and 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 then off-ramp them once they're off-ramp then they'll go to a monthly check-in with their interventionist and a a note taker and we just call we check in we have a Mm -hmm. conversation via zoom they talk about any any things that have arose over the last uh, uh, month yeah we kind of you know reinforce that they have the tools they need they have the ability they're strong enough they can navigate this then we go to another month and then the third monthly check-in is where that's their last call with us. And then we get an evaluation by them. We send them out something to like evaluate our work and, and how we did our job and how it helped them or didn't help them. And then we, we, keep, uh, we keep all that data. Wow, that's quite the program. Do you, do you find, is there like a certain, maybe a range that you find people usually fall into? Is it like a year or two years to de-radicalize? So I think that the first year is like your most crucial, right? Mm. And we've got kids that we've worked on for three years now. Oh, wow. uh, and we've got cases sometimes it takes a year, right? We've got over 50 active cases right now. Mm. That like and that's that's done every like that's that's our weekly caseload, our our bi-weekly caseload. So I mean Every individual is different and their level of severity is different. Yeah. So I think that that question is like asking like a mental health professional, yeah. like, oh, so you know somebody who's suicidal. Is there usually like a certain time frame where you notice like, oh, they're not suicidal anymore. And it's like, I wish there yeah. was. Yeah. You can't put a time on it. Do you guys, uh, do you have any like referrals or anything that kind of, or anything that comes up that you end up interacting with police on? Like maybe if somebody just starts regressing and you're like, uh, hey, red flags over here, you need to like pay attention to this person. Um, so we have had referrals from the court system. Mm. We've uh, we've had people be referred to us because they've had an interaction with the FBI. Yeah, and the F- we're on the FBI's radar as like an organization that's doing amazing work, and um, you know the, the FBI can't really get involved until there's criminal. Yeah activities so like but they can do like uh, a meet and greet a knock you know just come by and do a friendly knock on the door and be like hey man you know what you're doing knock it the fuck off yeah and in the meantime we would kind of like for you to reach out to these people they're gonna help you and uh i mean like you know i'm sure mubin told you on his podcast like i know a hundred percent certain that we have present we have prevented shooting Yes. We have prevented the things that are in the news and we don't run around and talk about it. 
We don't like, hey, look what we did. We just do the work. Yeah. Um, and it kind of hurts us sometimes because we're not advertising. We're not out there doing like all these interactive like like stuff. Like we're just so focused on doing the work because it seems like nobody else is. Every other organization out there, it seems like all they're focused on is fluffing their feathers and, and talking about what <laughs> that's why we don't do that. And it, it's what sets us apart. And the reason that we are the leading organization out there and that we're the ones that are setting the bar is because we're actually doing the work. We're actually getting in the trenches. We're meeting people where they're at. We're meeting them wherever their life has them. And we help them from that point on get from where they are to where they would like to be. And sometimes we don't get to do it with the individual. Sometimes we just have to work through a, a liaison the parents, a girlfriend, uh, a family member, a friend. And that's how we, we do our interventions. We can, we're so good at what we do. We can do secondary interventions yeah. without ever having a person interact with us. So I mean, like that's something in itself. Well, and like we were kind of saying just before we fired up the recording was uh, how you have other groups come along and, and try to imitate. Right. And I guess you can take that as flattery. But do you even see that in among um, all kinds of social agencies, whether they're shelters or addictions counseling? There's, you know, so many of these groups and it's like, well, who's really, who's helping, right? Like who is actually getting it done? So yeah, I think um, some of the stuff I've seen you guys post, it's pretty incredible work. Uh, and I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of the work. I, I think it's uh, some awesome stuff that you got going on. Yeah, that means a lot, man. Uh, you know, we like when I like the name, the quiet professional, man. Like that's that's kind of like that's how we are, man. We're quiet. We don't mm -hmm. we don't don't talk about what we're doing. Like uh, we're, I'm just now getting to the point where we'll do a lot of these interviews and stuff, and you know, it's it's really good to to let people know that we're there. Yeah, and when we talk about what we do and how we do it, and and our process and you know we're talking about it so that people can know that we're there yeah know that like there's a lot of places out there that say they do this right but we're the ones that they're trying to replicate and imitate yeah yeah 100 percent. and the choir professional name is is just just for those kind of people right it's uh it's not saying that you don't ever want recognition i mean everybody wants to know that at some point you're doing a good job and people appreciate it, but um, it's for the people getting the work done, right? You're in the trenches. So um, we're kind of come up on the end of my time here, but I want to make sure I give you a chance to uh, say how people can follow you and your work uh, and parents for peace and everything you're doing. Yeah, for sure. So uh, we have a website and that website is www.parents, the number four, peace p-e-a-c-e dot -E org uh we also have a national helpline that if somebody knows somebody or has a loved one that's struggling or if them themselves are struggling with with uh you know extremist ideology hate or you know some other issues that they need help with uh they can reach out to us and that is uh 844-49-PEACE so yeah, and then you know I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter, I'm on 
uh, Facebook, but listen, don't don't send me a friend request on Facebook because that's for close friends and family, and I found <laughs> the hell Facebook. So like, not a very accurate representation of who I am. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like I welcome anybody to reach out to us. Uh, Parents for Peace is also on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Uh, mm-hmm. If they want to follow us and just kind of keep track as to what we're doing, uh, they could sign up for a newsletter through the website that I gave you. Um, yeah, dude, like we we love to have people come out and just check out what we're doing and, and follow us. And, uh, you know, if, if somebody follows me on Twitter or sends me a request on LinkedIn, I'll definitely follow back and, uh, you know, reciprocate. So, yeah, for sure. Awesome. Um, well, I want to say thanks for coming on. I think you guys are doing important work. Uh, I had moving on a little while ago. Uh, we got you on, so I'll see who I can pick off next from the organization and have them tell their story. Oh, dude, listen, like the next person, the next person you got to talk to is my dude, Pardeep Kalika, man. Uh, he's, uh, he's taught me a lot about how to do what I do. So, uh, in term of mentorship and, Mm -hmm. uh, somebody that I extremely admire and, uh, the dude's amazing. Um, I, I suggest you reach out to him and, uh, awesome. I'll shoot you his email and I'll let him know that you're going to reach out and hopefully you can make that happen. But, uh, yeah, that'll be an awesome episode for you, bro. Cool. Um, well, thanks for coming on. Just hang on the line for two seconds. Let's say by offline, but, uh, uh, man, much appreciation for coming on here.